1: Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire.
0: Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark.
1: Listener, what is it that drives human beings to engage in particular behaviors? Reflecting on the underlying motivators of both our own behavior and that of those around us leads us to explore all manner of theories. Often we look to features or aspects of our own individual personalities as a contributing factor in how we respond to and interact with the world around us. A throwaway expression we've often heard used in jest to describe what we feel are contradictions within someone is. They must have a split personality. Indeed, we may use it at times in an effort to explain vindictive behavior we see exhibited by others who lash out at those around them. The concept of how multiple personalities can't exist within one person gained popularity in the mid-20th century via the field of psychoanalysis. Psychotherapists theorized that different personalities, clinically defined as alters, were the result of human psyche splintering or disassociating as a coping mechanism. This was an involuntary and subconscious response to emotional and psychological trauma experienced during childhood, such as sexual abuse. The resulting disassociation is reported to cause a type of amnesia regarding traumatic memories, which become suppressed as they are too painful to consciously process. Originally known as Multiple Personality Disorder, but now known as Disassociative Identity Disorder, the condition has since fallen out of clinical and diagnostic favor. Depictions of Disassociative Identity Disorder in the media and popular culture aren't necessarily an accurate representation either. Films like The Three Phases of Eve, Sybil, and Primal Fear can portray oversimplified representations of people living with a rare, complex, controversial, An often misunderstood diagnosis. And it's no wonder we've become intrigued by something we only see in the movies or on TV. It's difficult to imagine how such a condition would manifest itself in the real world. But as you'll hear in today's story, it was this diagnosis which was used to explain a crime so horrific, so gruesome, and so unbelievable that it could have leapt straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Working Class Man In 1989, the Australian city of Brisbane was growing. Situated in the southeast of the state of Queensland, the thriving inland metropolis was home to over 1.2 million people and the third largest city in Australia. Picturesque parklands and gardens overlooking the Brisbane River were a drawcard for tourists and locals alike offering a relaxed outdoor lifestyle enhanced by the warm and sunny weather all year round. During the 1980s, the city played host to high-profile sporting and cultural events, such as the 1982 Commonwealth Games and the World Expo in 1988, the latter even promoting Queensland as a tourist destination and a major event as part of Australia's bicentenary, which marked 200 years since British colonization. Brisbane resident 47-year-old Edward Baldick was a devoted husband of 25 years to his wife Elaine, a proud father of five and doting grandfather of two. Edward and Elaine lived in the suburb of West End, and Edward's job with the Brisbane City Council as a road worker often took him away from home for days at a time. Elaine herself didn't drive, so when Edward returned after work, he enjoyed nothing more than taking his family to the beach for some quality time. Being a family man, Edward loved playing with his grandchildren, especially on a swing set in the backyard, he always looked forward to weekly pizza nights with his family. Edward also enjoyed socializing and playing darts, and on his days off liked to join his friends for a few drinks to catch up and shoot the breeze. He was not the sort of person who had a few too many drinks and got aggressive with anyone, nor did he have any history of antisocial behavior. Unfortunately... Not much more is publicly known about Edward, but by all accounts he was happy leading a quiet life and making his family his priority. On the afternoon of October 20th, 1989, Edward caught a taxi from his house to the Caledonia Club, a pub near Kangaroo Point, Fifteen minutes' drive away, he'd planned to meet up with friends and attend a dark competition, which he enjoyed doing on his days off from work. He'd catch a cab home later, as he did every time he went out for the evening, and probably be nursing a hangover the next day. What Edward didn't know was this was to be his last night out on the town, and he would never make it home. Part 2 Little Tracy Tracy Avril Wigginton was born on August 4, 1965, in the town of Rockhampton, or Rocky, as it's known to the locals. Situated on the central Queensland coast on the Tropic of Capricorn, the historic town is known as the beef capital of Australia and is a seven-hour drive north of Brisbane. Tracy's mother Rhonda had been adopted by George and Avril Wigginton in 1942. Georgian made his own fortune through securing government contracts for his earth-moving business and was a well-known figure in Rockhampton, even having a street named after him. The Wicentons were millionaires and enjoyed a privileged position as an influential family in town. Avril was unable to have children but desperately wanted a bigger family. So, in addition to Rhonda, the couple adopted two more girls. Doral, in 1950... Followed by Michelle in the late 1950s, but instead of providing a loving and stable home for her children, Avril was said to verbally, physically, and emotionally abuse her daughters and kept them socially isolated. In the book The Vampire Killer by Ron Hicks, Rhonda later reported that her uncle, who was Avril's brother-in-law, began sexually abusing her at the age of 11. Not content with making her daughter's lives a misery avril constantly fought with her husband whom she despised this only added to the atmosphere of uncertainty and fear in the wigginton home and the discord saw george eventually start to engage in extramarital affairs which only enraged avril further george started spending more and more time away from the home focusing on his lucrative business projects and instead of resenting george for his long absences from home this suited avril just fine She could now have complete control of her daughters and would rule the household with an iron fist. In 1964, Rhonda married a man named Bill and gave birth to her daughter Tracy the following year. Avril was delighted about the new addition to the family. and As Bill was often away for work, Avril made it her business to be as involved in every aspect of her granddaughter's care as possible. Eventually, Avril's insistence at being involved in every aspect of Rhonda's life took its toll. In 1968, Rhonda met another man and left town to pursue the relationship, leaving her husband Bill high and dry, and three year old Tracy in the care of Avril. As the years passed, Tracy would develop a seething resentment towards Rhonda for abandoning her. Bill, on the other hand, did his best to maintain contact in a relationship with his young daughter. But as explained in The Vampire Killer, Bill felt frozen out by his affluent in-laws. Avril manipulated Tracy and was intent on excluding Bill from any involvement in his daughter's care. In the end, Bill made the difficult decision to relinquish all legal rights as Tracy's father, permanently leaving her in the care of her grandparents. George and Avril went on to formally adopt Tracy at age seven as their own daughter George often worked away from home for extended periods, but he and Tracy were reported to share a special bond. When George returned home after a work trip, he and Tracy would spend hours together, but the relationship was said to have soon turned sinister. Tracy later reported that George began sexually abusing her at around age seven, which continued for the next five years. In the early 1970s, the Wiggintons adopted another daughter named Michelle who was a few years older than Tracy. The two girls started to form a bond, but Avril was adamant that the girls not develop any sort of relationship and kept them apart as often as she could. There was clear favoritism in the Wigginton household. Tracy was the apple of Avril's eye and enjoyed preferential treatment, while Michelle bore the brunt of Avril's vicious temper. She endured several physical beatings, was treated as the domestic help, was made to eat separately to the rest of the family at mealtimes on one occasion avril burned michelle with an iron as punishment in another incident avril tied michelle to the foundations under the house and left her there overnight it should come as no surprise that at age eight michelle was reported to have been sexually abused by a male family friend of avril's finally around 1973 Michelle ran away from the Wigginton home just before she turned 15. Tracy, who was left behind, was only 8 years old, and by this time had taken to carrying around an old pillowcase as a security blanket. After Michelle ran away, it was only a matter of time before Tracy became the target of Avril's rage. As she had previously done with her own daughters, Avril started punishing Tracy by flogging her with an iron cord while screaming abuse and repeatedly lecturing Tracy that all men were dirty bastards. Tracy was terrified and confused, and the sustained abuse she received at the hands of Avril would later go on to instill in Tracy a pathological hatred of men. Avril believed in a good education, cultural enrichment, and attending Sunday school. Aside from Tracy attending Catholic private schools... She was enrolled in elocution, music, art, and ballroom dancing classes. However, Avril socially isolated Tracy from her peers, and as a result, the young girl didn't have many friends. It didn't help that Tracy's diagnosis of asthma at a young age disrupted her schooling. In order to receive treatment, she was required to make the long trip back and forth between Rockhampton and Brisbane. Tracy was tall and solidly built. And even at the age of 13, her physically imposing appearance exacerbated her existing self-esteem issues. Tracy felt like she didn't fit in and stuck out for all the wrong reasons. Her peers and teachers at school recalled that Tracy was a loner. And while she was often friendly to some classmates, she was tough and could sometimes turn into a vicious bully. In her early teen years, Tracy started skipping school, smoking, and dressing in black clothing. Already a fan of Stephen King novels, she became interested in witchcraft, black magic, Ouija boards, seances, and tarot cards. It was also during this time that Tracy began exploring her sexuality. She was eventually expelled from an exclusive girls' school she attended after it was reported she, quote, "...molested other female students." George and Avril soon found another private Catholic school where Tracy was enrolled. Surely the rebellious behavior was just an adolescent phase that Tracy would grow out of, right? In July 1979, when Tracy was 13 years old, her grandfather, George, died from cancer. Over the years, Avril had continued to socialize with the man who was said to have sexually abused Michelle several years earlier. Following George's death, Avril asked her male friend to take over as Tracy's disciplinarian. But on one occasion in 1980 while visiting the house, the man slapped Avril. Perfectly calm, Tracy then physically attacked the man. She beat him so badly he was hospitalized with head injuries, a fractured nose, and slashed fingers. In June 1981, Avril passed away. Even though Tracy had endured horrific abuse at the hands of her grandparents, she still felt their loss. With her grandparents both gone, 16-year-old Tracy moved in with her mother, Rhonda, and younger half-sister. Rhonda and Tracy had maintained intermittent contact over the years, but the relationship was strained. Mother and daughter constantly clashed at home, so it was decided that it would be best if Tracy moved in with a couple who were friends of Rhonda's. This all seemed to be an ideal arrangement, but it wasn't long before Tracy and the husband of the couple started having an affair. Still only 16, Tracy fell pregnant and had an abortion, but the affair continued. The book Killer Instinct by forensic psychiatrist Dr. Donald Grant, who interviewed Tracy years later, recounted the story of the husband of the couple being kicked out of the house where Tracy was living. This wasn't due to the affair he was having with Tracy, but instead an allegation made by the couple's daughter that her father had sexually abused her. To make things even more complicated, there are conflicting reports that the wife soon initiated a sexual relationship with Tracy, only for this to end as quickly as it started when the older woman moved on to another man and Tracy moved out. Tracy's antisocial and problematic behavior continued, and it was around this time that she was reported to have killed her pet cat, despite denying having done so. In another incident, it was reported that when Tracy discovered that the late Avril's belongings were being stored at her Aunt Doral's house, Tracy broke into the home. In a fit of rage, she graffitied the walls with swastikas and obscene slurs, and destroyed many of the family possessions in storage. Tracy's relationship with both men and women were volatile, given her explosive hair-trigger temper. Despite being articulate and intelligent, she was an average student. By 1982, at age 17, she lost interest in school, dropping out to attend a vocational and trade school. When Tracy turned 18 she inherited $75,000 from her grandparents’ estate, but the money didn't last long. She purchased a motorcycle, and the rest of her inheritance disappeared quickly as Tracy used it to maintain her social life. By now she had taken to dressing as a biker, Her personal style was described by those who knew her as butch, long having cut off her hair and maintaining a short hairstyle and preferring to dress in pants, jeans, and boots. Tracy started engaging in sex work and explored her growing interest in satanic rituals, speaking to friends at length about her interest in the occult, at one stage carving a pentagram symbol into the back of her hand. The many tattoos that now adorned Tracy's body As well as the jewelry she wore, featured satanic designs and symbols. Tracy had always had a flair for art, but her pieces started to feature the pentagram and other occult symbols, reflecting the darkness of her interests. During this time, Tracy decided to move to the far north Queensland city of Cairns, a 12 hour drive north of Rockhampton, where she would live for the next three years a popular tourist destination year-round, and a gateway to the Great Barrier Reef. Cairns offered all manner of employment opportunities for people relocating to the area, especially in hospitality. Even though Tracy had dropped out of school and had no qualifications, it wasn't difficult for her to find a job. She soon started working as a bartender and bouncer, going by the name of Bobby By this stage, Tracy was six feet tall and weighed around 250 pounds. With her intimidating physical appearance and domineering personality, others around Tracy sensed that it was best to stay on her good side. It was while living in Cairns that Tracy met a woman called Sunshine, and the pair soon began a relationship that at times was chaotic and abusive. Tracy wanted the relationship to become serious, but Sunshine had a tendency to be unfaithful. And Tracy later reported physically abusing her partner. Despite the ongoing friction between the couple and the fact that the legalization of same-sex marriage in Australia would be another 35 years away, Tracy and Sunshine married in mid-1986 in an unofficial ceremony. When Tracy turned 21 not long after her wedding, she inherited a further $80,000 from her grandparents' estate. Again, the money went as fast as Tracy and her new wife could spend it. Tracy and Sunshine decided to start a family, but their relationship suffered a devastating blow when Tracy had a miscarriage. Under various strains, the brief marriage finally ended in 1987. Sunshine identified as bisexual and continually cheated on Tracy. She eventually left her to start another relationship with a man. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment, visit BetterHelp.com/obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game. Each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned keep your wits about you. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F O O D.com slash obscura. Part 3 Toil and Trouble. Tracy was crushed about the end of her marriage. Yet again, she felt she'd been abandoned, and the blow to her self esteem saw her become sullen and withdrawn. Heartbroken, she returned to Rockhampton and in late 1987 started a relationship with a woman named Debbie who was five years her junior. The couple were said to have had a much healthier relationship than Tracy had with Sunshine. But even though Tracy was now 22 years old, she persisted in carrying around her security blanket from her childhood. Still, she was desperately in love with Debbie and happier than she'd been in a long time. In 1988, the couple relocated to the state capital of Brisbane, where Tracy decided it was time to get her life together and enrolled in a sheet metal work course. But as detailed in the book The Vampire Killer, the relationship wasn't to last. The couple parted ways in February 1989, when Debbie met another woman, but Tracy and her ex-girlfriend continued to live together. Tracy herself pursued a relationship with another woman, but could never seem to make a clean break from Debbie. In mid-1989, Tracy met some new friends, Kim Jarvis and Tracy Waugh, we were both 23 years old and in a de facto relationship. Listener, as we now have two players in our story named Tracy, to avoid any confusion, our protagonist will continue to be referred to for the rest of the episode by her first name. Tracy Wall will be referred to by her first and middle names of Tracy Ann. Kim and Tracy Ann had originally met as teenagers at school, but hadn't long been together. Kim was obsessed with vampire movies, and vampirism in general, and her penchant for gory movies seemed to rub off on Tracy. The pair reportedly became fascinated with repeatedly watching a video of someone being shot in the head at close range with a shotgun. In early October 1989, Tracy met another of Kim's friends. 24-year-old Lisa Paczynski had a history of both mental illness and self-harm, and was said to be fixated on the idea of committing suicide. By the time Tracy met Lisa, her struggles with self-harm were said to have resulted in approximately 80 hospital visits. Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann already knew each other as part of their small, local, swampy community. The term swampy was an expression used in the 1980s to describe the Australian incarnation of the goth subculture. Although the specifics of the definition can vary depending on the source, At the time Tracy met her new friends, she was still living with her on-and-off girlfriend, Debbie, and the relationship was rocky. By now, the couple were having an open relationship, but Tracy was angry and resentful about the situation. Tracy started dating Lisa, but didn't tell Debbie, deciding to keep her new fling a secret. 24-year-old Tracy soon became the ringleader of the foursome, which was easy given the other girls were said to be impressionable and easily influenced. Tracy shared with them her interest in the occult and claimed to have the power to make people disappear, which captivated her friends. She didn't have a full-time job, but enjoyed spending hours with the other girls indulging in their shared love of horror movies. The girls later claimed that rumors about Tracy drinking animal blood and her reported interest in vampirism preceded her in becoming a powerful and controlling influence on their friendship group. Listener as difficult and stomach churning as it is to contemplate it may surprise you to learn that a diagnosed condition exists which is characterized by the desire to consume blood and a self-belief in vampirism renfield syndrome also known as clinical vampirism is a condition that tends to be more common amongst men than women and is commonly used to describe those who claim to have a genuine thirst for blood the signs of renfield syndrome include a history of experiencing a bloody childhood event becoming sexually aroused at the sight of blood, drinking one's own blood, going so far as to attack people to steal their blood, the belief that you're running out of blood, stealing blood, dreaming about blood, believing that blood has medicinal properties, and the desire to consume living animals, also known as zoophagia. In early October 1989, the foursome decided to have a nighttime picnic in Brisbane's Toowong Cemetery. Not content with the morbid setting, the group decided to take a headstone home with them as a macabre souvenir of their excursion. Over the years, Tracy had been known to carry a hunting knife, and on the 19th of October, Debbie noticed her meticulously sharpening it. That same day, Tracy also decided to change up her hairstyle by giving herself a buzz cut and dyeing her hair black. That evening, she and Kim went out for a drive when Tracy started talking about Satanism and devil-worshipping, saying that she felt that Satan wanted her to be a destroyer. Traditionally, the concept of Satanism is generally regarded as a rejection of Judeo-Christian deities such as God and Jesus Christ. The construct of Satan himself may also be considered not an independent deity per se, but as a representation of what it means to reject Christian values. On the night of the 19th of October, Tracy reiterated to Lisa and Tracy Ann her desire to be a destroyer for Satan. She asked them to help her find a victim so she could feed, and was heard wondering aloud what it would be like to kill someone. Part 4. In the Shadows following night, at around 10 p.m., the girls headed out for a night on the town to a gay nightclub called L'Amour in the northeast Brisbane suburb of Fortitude Valley. The group, who were all dressed in black and carrying concealed knives, were seen enjoying each other's company and drinking sparkling wine. But the conversation soon turned to the macabre. Tracy became restless, telling the girls she had a need to feed on human blood. Instead, set about convincing the group to find someone to satiate her appetite. At 11.30 p.m., the women left the bar. They piled into Tracy's green hole in Commodore and drove off with the Prince song, Bat Dance, blaring on the stereo. The group took the story bridge south over the Brisbane River, driving along River Terrace towards the suburb of Kangaroo Point. Trawling the inner city streets looking for someone whom Tracy found enticing, just after midnight, the women came across Edward Baldock, stumbling about on the street and using a signpost to help keep him upright. Edward was extremely intoxicated with a blood-level alcohol of 0.3, and he decided to walk home after a night out drinking beer and playing darts at the Caledonian Club with his friends. Getting out of the car, Kim spoke to Edward and offered him a ride home. With the added bonus of sexual favors, should he choose to accept. Edward thought it was his lucky night, got into the back seat of the car where Tracy was sitting. With Tracy navigating, Lisa drove, and the group drove 15 minutes to Orlea Park, in Brisbane suburb of West End. Once they arrived, Lisa parked the car near the South Brisbane Sailing Club. Tracy was familiar with the location and knew that at this time of night it would be deserted. Tracy Ann, Lisa, and Kim stayed in the car while Tracy walked Edward down to the boat shed on the grassy banks of the Brisbane River on the promise of having sex. Tracy and Edward initially sat down on the grass and talked for a while before Tracy removed her shirt. Taking his cue, Edward also started to undress. Tracy told him she was going for a walk to relieve herself, but instead went to the car to fetch Lisa telling her she needed assistance to follow through on her plan. Lisa followed Tracy back to the riverbank carrying a knife of her own, and when they returned, they saw that Edward had removed his shoes and placed his neatly folded clothes on top in anticipation. He also had wedged his wallet containing $35 under one of the closed roller doors of the sailing club. Suddenly, paralyzed with fear and finding herself unable to stab Edward as instructed by Tracy, Lisa froze. She gave the knife to Tracy who plunged it into Edward up to the hilt, stabbing him in the face and neck. Using her own knife, Tracy continued to stab Edward in an attack that was so frenzied that Tracy almost severed Edward's spinal cord. A panicked Lisa ran back to the car, but Tracy continued her assault on the helpless man, lashing out at his neck from various angles, rolling him up over and slicing open his jugular vein. As she inflicted a total of 27 stab wounds, while Edward lay gurgling and struggling to hang on to life, Tracy sat on the ground spent and smoked a cigarette as her victim died in front of her. Edward had sustained so many stab wounds to his back that a gaping cavity the size of a small plate had been torn open into his torso in a final, degrading, and horrifying act. Tracy buried her face into the open cavity in Edward's back caused by the multiple stab wounds and sucked his blood out of the exposed tissue and muscle. When she was finished, Tracy returned to the car and matter-of-factly directed Lisa and Kim to come and see what she'd done. After witnessing the grisly aftermath of Tracy's attack, Lacey and Kim returned to the car where Tracy Ann had stayed the entire time. Tracy washed the blood off her knife, hands, and arms in the river. When she got back to the car, the girls could smell the blood on her breath. Lisa asked her, ''Have you fed?'' Tracy responded she had, to which Kim said, ''You look like you've had a three-course meal.'' Leaving Edward's body at the scene, the girls drove back into the city. Kim took the knives and washed them up with bleach back at her apartment. After returning home, Tracy realized her keycard was missing. So under the cover of darkness, she and Lisa returned to the crime scene to look for it. Unable to find the missing ID, the pair decided to leave to minimize the risk that anyone would see them in the area. Part 5. Interview with a Vampire Following day, Edward's wife Elaine awoke early. She'd had a restless night when her husband hadn't come home the previous evening following a night out in the city. Even though Edward was partial to a beer or three with friends on his days off, it was unlike him to come home late, let alone not at all. At 5 a.m., a worried Elaine called the police to inform them that her husband hadn't returned or contacted her. During the day, Birdsong usually rings out across the area. The trees rustle in the breeze, and the hum of watercraft in the distance is only broken by the sound of gentle waves lapping at the shore. But as the rower looked over at the boat sheds and the ramps leading down to the water, he saw what appeared to be a motionless body lying on the riverbank. The man changed direction and aimed his vessel towards the bank to get a closer look. Pulling up and making his way up the bank, the man realized his worst fears. It was indeed a body, not that of someone with a hangover sleeping off the previous night's excesses, but that of Edward Baldock, who was still wearing his socks and whose blood was sprayed all over the clothes roller door in front of which he lay lifeless. Police descended upon the scene, with Detective Senior Sergeant Patrick Glancy leading the investigation. The level of violence inflicted upon Edward indicated to police that a strong person or multiple people, most likely a man, was responsible. The autopsy found that Edward had lost 75% of his blood during the attack, and the two main arteries in his neck had been completely severed. The attack had been so ferocious that Edward was almost decapitated, but an examination of his body and the surrounding area soon gave police their most vital clue. Inside Edward's left shoe was a Commonwealth Bank ATM card, but it wasn't Edward's. The card was in the name of Miss T.A. Wigginton. It is not known how Tracy's key card came to be in the shoe, and it didn't appear to have fallen inside accidentally. Instead, it was tucked inside, resting flat against the inner sole, indicating that someone had placed it there deliberately. Police later surmised that both Edward and Tracy both banked with Commonwealth Bank. It was possible that seeing the discarded card on the ground, Edward assumed that it was his, and even in his drunken haze, had the presence of mind to place it inside his shoe for safekeeping. What we do know is that early the same day Edward's body was discovered, Tracy returned to Orley Park with her ex-girlfriend Debbie to look for it, but was unsuccessful. When Tracy spotted police at the scene, she said, Oh my god, it's real. May Debbie take her home. Around 10 a.m. that morning, police visited Tracy to conduct initial inquiries. She cooperated with the police and admitted to being at the park the previous night with Kim and Tracy Ann, where they played around on some nearby playground equipment. Tracy initially said she couldn't remember losing her ATM card and added that she'd seen a suspicious-looking couple in the park that evening. Police took Tracy to Orley Park so she could show them where she'd been hanging out the previous night. It was at this stage that Tracy mentioned that Lisa had also been at the park, a detail Tracy had tried to avoid disclosing because she didn't want Debbie to know she had been dating someone else. While visiting Tracy's apartment, police searched her car and found a bloodstained towel. In her next police interview, Tracy admitted to having been dishonest and that she had been near the sailing club in the park the night in question. She told police that she and her friends had in fact been out walking that night near the sailing club when she saw a man's body. Tracy said that this made them panicked and fearful, so they fled the area but didn't notify anyone about their grisly discovery. But police saw through Tracy's second account of what happened and were immediately suspicious that there was more to the story they weren't being told. The blood found on the towel in Tracy's car was found to belong to Edward. Kim had been brought in for questioning to verify Tracy's story, and the investigators' concerns were confirmed when Kim gave an account that conflicted significantly with Tracy's. Kim decided to tell the police what really happened and stated that Tracy wanted her to watch as she drank Edward's blood, saying, I want to scare you. I want to frighten the living hell out of you. Meanwhile, over the course of the day while Tracy was being interviewed, Lisa had actually already confessed to friends what happened the previous night and they urged her to contact police. Lisa presented voluntarily at the police station where she told investigators about the murder and that she firmly believed that Tracy was a vampire based on her previous behavior. Following Lisa and Kim's confessions, police interviewed Tracy for a third time and were open about her friends having implicated her. Tracy realized the jig was up. Taking control of the situation, she told police, Put the tape back in. I'll tell you what happened.
0: Where did first? Back to the neck In of
1: Investigators noted that as Tracy divulged the gory details, she appeared to be relishing the opportunity to tell her shocking story. She denied that her friends were involved and said she felt nothing while stabbing Edward repeatedly in her statement to the police without any hint of remorse or compassion tracy coldly said i walked around behind him i took my knife out of my pocket he asked me what i was doing and i said nothing and stabbed him he went to grab my hand i pushed his down i then grabbed him by the hair on his head and pulled back stabbed him in the front of the throat and at that stage he was still alive In contrast to the claims made by the other girls that Tracy was a shark in a feeding frenzy during her attack on Edward, Tracy denied drinking Edward's blood. With Tracy having confessed and taking into account that she was 238 pounds, police now understood how it would have been easily possible for her to have overpowered the diminutive and heavily intoxicated Edward, and Tracy was charged with his murder. Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann denied responsibility in Edward's murder telling police that they were swept up in Tracy's ability to manipulate and intimidate others around her. Tracy Ann told police, Tracy has mind power. She has a hold on you. She's like a magnet. You can't stop yourself from doing what she tells you. Despite Kim, Tracy Ann, and Lisa maintaining their innocence, all three were charged with Edward's murder. Various additional charges were laid against each woman when Lisa charged with supplying the murder weapon. Kim with the concealing evidence of a murder, and Tracy Ann with a failure to intervene during the attack. During a police search of Kim's house, officers found a photo montage of images taken in various Brisbane cemeteries. This corroborated investigators' observation that all women involved had a preoccupation with death and the occult. In January 1990, committal proceedings commenced against Tracy. Under Queensland law, the offense of first-degree murder carries a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Edward's widow, Elaine, attended court most days to hear the evidence given about her beloved husband's terrified last moments. Tracy's defense team notified the court of their client's intent to plead not guilty, arguing that she was mentally ill at the time of the murder. In response, the Queensland Mental Health Tribunal ordered Tracy to undergo intensive and rigorous psychiatric assessment. In the event that Tracy was found to have mental illness and had been unwell at the time of the murder, she would not proceed to trial and would instead be sent to a facility that would allow her to receive psychiatric treatment. At the conclusion of the assessment process, which included hypnotherapy, in November 1990 the tribunal determined that Tracy was not mentally ill, and therefore fit to enter a plea. In an unexpected move, Tracy decided to change her plea to guilty. Thankfully for Edward's family and friends, they would be spared the mental and emotional trauma of a trial in terms of Tracy's involvement. But Tracy also benefited from the decision to change her plea. The court decided that the criminal proceedings against Tracy would be closed, and as such, nothing said in court about the details of the murder. Tracy's history, or the information gleaned from her psychiatric assessments, could be published by the media. In a hearing that lasted just nine minutes on January 21, 1991, Tracy was convicted of first degree murder by the Supreme Court of Queensland and sentenced to life in jail. A non parole period of 13 years was applied, and Tracy was sent to Bago Road Jail in Brisbane. As far as the public knew, the wheels of justice had appeared to move relatively swiftly and it was a relief that one of the women responsible had pled guilty and been locked away. Following sentencing, some of the Wigginton family came out in public support of Tracy. Her older adoptive sister, Michelle, who had escaped the abusive Wigginton home years earlier as a teenager, described Avril as cruel and told the media she regretted not taking the younger Tracy with her when she ran away. Tracy's aunt also stated that she believed her niece's criminal behavior was a result of her taking revenge for her stolen childhood. Part 6, Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde With Tracy in jail, it was Lisa, Tracy Ann, and Kim's turn to appear before a jury for the first day of their murder trial on January 31st, 1991. The trio didn't take the stand in their defense, but the court was instead shown the videotape police interviews that were conducted with the women in the days following their arrests during these interviews lisa kim and tracy ann can be heard telling police that tracy avoided sunlight as well as mirrors and that she had previously obtained animal blood from her local butcher which she reportedly drank lisa told police that not long before the murder tracy instructed her to cut a vein in her hand so she could suck lisa's blood as tracy had earlier pled guilty and avoided a trial None of the evidence gathered during her police interviews or information leading up to her sentencing had been released on the public record. But that was about to change, and what would emerge would prove to be unlike anything the court had heard before. Evidence was presented by the prosecution that prior to Edwards' murder, the foursome engaged in numerous discussions about what it would be like to kill someone for the purposes of consuming human blood. Being able to establish a strong element of premeditation was key to securing a conviction against the three women now on trial. The court heard that after Edward undressed, Tracy returned to the car to fetch Lisa for the express purpose of having backup, should Tracy be unable to physically subdue and kill the drunken man herself. The court heard that Tracy consistently denied to police and her psychiatrist that she ever told people she was a vampire, that she ever obtained pig and cow's blood from her local butcher to drink or that she drank Edward's blood, as the girls had asserted in their earlier police interviews. As if this revelation weren't horrifying enough, other details about Tracy emerged at the trial that gave the case an even more bizarre twist. Tracy's initial denial of events on the night of the murder were said to indicate that she had disassociative identity disorder, and that the murder was not committed by Tracy herself, but an alternative, violent personality. Listener You'll recall that at the start of the episode, dissociative identity disorder was described as a condition that can develop in people who have experienced significant childhood trauma. In order for the mind to process painful memories, the psyche can fragment to alternate personalities that are buried in the subconscious. Following her arrest, Tracy had been experiencing excruciating headaches. As you heard earlier, the Queensland Mental Health Tribunal ordered that Tracy be assessed in order to determine whether this was in fact the case. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Donald Grant interviewed Tracy while she was still awaiting trial. Dr. Grant noted that during the court-ordered assessments conducted immediately following Tracy's arrest, she didn't mention any psychiatric issues. However, it was noted that she seemed to be unable to remember a significant amount of her childhood, her early teen years anything about the night of the murder, or her third police interview. This prompted Tracy to undergo hypnotherapy under the supervision of psychologist Dr. Chris Clark from the University of New South Wales. It was hoped that the hypnotherapy sessions would assist in ascertaining the causes of Tracy's headaches and memory loss. Over 26 hours of videotaped sessions during a two-week period with experts in forensic psychiatry and psychology Tracy spoke of the trauma inflicted on her from a young age while growing up with her abusive grandparents. She claimed they exposed her to the occult, providing a detailed account of witnessing an animal sacrifice as a child on Mount Archer. Tracy claimed that the participants in the ritual, including her grandparents, slaughtered a goat and drank its blood. As a result of the hypnotherapy sessions, Tracy was said to have six separate personalities or alters, two of which were said to express thoughts of violence but not all of the alters made themselves known at once the psychologist's report noted that these alters were known by the name of little tracy who was frightened childlike and innocent big tracy who had severe depression and was a combination of all the alters the observer who was detached and monitored and reported on behavior of the other alters and bobby who was a 16-year-old male with a frightening, brutal demeanor who was believed to have first emerged during Tracy's childhood and also acted as the protector of little Tracy. The sixth alter, who didn't make herself known until well into the assessment process, was called Avril. This alter was considered by the others to be the most terrifying and controlling and was understood to be the reincarnation of Tracy's malevolent late grandmother, during tracy's session with dr clark where he asked her to recount how she felt when she first saw edward dr clark noted that tracy's face seemed to visibly change as she growled in the deep voice of bobby i want him bobby also called big tracy a wimp it was noted by the various psychiatrists who assessed tracy that her speech facial expressions and mannerisms all changed depending on which of her alters were engaging in the conversation Dr. Grant described Tracy as a large woman with a commanding personality who exhibited a hint of relish and a degree of sadism as a reaction to realizing what she'd done. In contrast to the distinct alters who made their presence known in the hypnotherapy sessions, Dr. Grant noted in his interview with Tracy that while she was extremely intelligent, she lacked any emotion when discussing the murder. In his assessment, Dr. Grant claimed that Avril was the dominant personality in Tracy's psyche on the night Edward was murdered, but that the altar of Bobby took over during the actual stabbing. Dr. Jim Quinn also examined Tracy following her arrest and prior to her sentencing hearing, he suggested that Tracy's ATM card found its way into Edward's shoe, courtesy of the altar Little Tracy, who wanted to ensure that evidence was left at the scene incriminating Big Tracy and therefore preventing her from harming anyone else. Dr. Quinn was of the view that it was not vampirism or the desire to drink blood that drove Tracy to murder Edward, but Satanism and the subconscious desire to kill. Dr. Quinn went further, asserting that when Tracy ambushed Edward and attacked him at the boat sheds, she was acting out a scenario she had buried in her psyche from years earlier, when as a child she observed her grandmother participating in the satanic ritual killings at Mount Archer. During the trial of Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann, Tracy's mother Rhonda and adoptive sister Michelle both said outside of court that Tracy couldn't have been a vampire given she was incredibly squeamish and couldn't stand the sight of blood. Dr. Quinn stated in his report that by targeting Edward, Tracy's different personalities had selected a man who for her represented a grandfather figure upon whom she could exact her revenge for the years of sexual abuse she experienced as a child at the hands of her late grandfather. But the clinical diagnosis was not unanimous. Other forensic mental health experts who examined Tracy agreed that her anger management issues and tendency to have violent outbursts resulted from her traumatic childhood, but they stopped short of pinpointing a specific psychiatric diagnosis instead concurring that Tracy had a significant personality disorder. Despite disassociative identity disorder being recognized as a mental health condition, and the experts' conclusion that Tracy was mentally unwell at the time of the murder, the Queensland Mental Health Tribunal found her fit to stand trial, as we already know. What wasn't publicly known at the time was the explanation. The tribunal refused to accept that disassociative identity disorder was a quote, abnormality of the mind under the state's criminal code and is also the reason why tracy's diagnosis wasn't considered a justifiable defense on the grounds of diminished responsibility nor was it taken into account at her sentencing where the judge noted even if at the time of the alleged offense the patient was in a state of mental disease or natural mental infirmity it did not deprive her of her capacity to understand what she was doing or of capacity to know that she ought not do the act. Unfortunately for the defense in Tracy's case, the judge did not permit any of her videotaped hypnotherapy sessions to be shown in court. The defense team representing Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann concurred with the prosecution that a common interest in the occult is what initially drew the four women together, and claimed that Tracy was a member of a cult before she met the other women. But the defense rejected the idea put forward by the crown that the killing was motivated by Tracy's interest in satanism and the occult. They maintained that the other three women had been placed under some sort of spell by Tracy through her powers as a vampire.
0: The court has been told that Tracy Wigington believed she was a vampire. She was involved in satanic worship, witchcraft, and blood drinking. Her co-accused, Lisa Pejinski, said she could not eat solid food. She had to feed on blood.
1: The defense claimed that Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann were swept up in a plan that was totally masterminded by Tracy who was a bully, and that the trio felt they had no choice but to go along with her demands. The comparison was made that Tracy's powerful and manipulative influence on the group was akin to brainwashing. Lisa's defense team claimed that she'd only met Tracy two weeks before Edward was murdered, but was enamored with Tracy's magnetic personality.
0: The court heard Lisa Pejinski had a severe personality disorder. She was thoroughly infatuated and probably dominated by Tracy Wigington. Pejinski said of Wigington, "She had some sort of inner power. She can do strange things. She can make people disappear except their eyes. She can read my mind." The court was told Brzezinski had been admitted to hospital 82 times in the last five years. She'd overdosed on drugs or had tried to commit suicide.
1: Lisa's defense team went on to say that she didn't really believe that Tracy planned to murder someone, and that if anything, she too was a victim of Tracy's ability to manipulate others. This same argument was put forward in defending the actions of Kim and Tracy Ann, who were said to be petrified of Tracy, and went along with the plan out of fear for their own safety. Kim's lawyer described his client as being of a good character and a typical young woman who had an interest in childlike hobbies such as collecting dolls and plush toys. Tracy Ann, who was the only defendant whose family attended the proceedings to support their daughter, was described as a coward and depicted as someone whose vulnerability was exploited by Tracy's domineering personality. The public was beyond shocked and outraged at the new revelations. The salacious nature of the crime captured the public's imagination and generated a macabre fascination with the gruesome details. Titillating media headlines such as Killer was devil's wife with powers to control minds and Lesbian vampire killer lured men with the promise of sex before killing him for his blood were typical in the days and weeks following the trial of Kim, Lisa, and Tracy Ann. The Courier-Mail newspaper published a quote taken from one of Tracy's hypnotherapy sessions, where she reportedly stated, I'd like to stab the top off someone's head and say, Think. Let me see you think. Regrettably for the LGBTQI plus community across Queensland at the time, homosexuality was considered taboo in many circles. The resulting media focus on the women's sexuality and the speculation as to how it contributed to the crime only served to further stigmatize and arouse suspicion regarding those who didn't identify as heterosexual or were gender-fluid. On February 13, 1991, the jury retired to make their decision about the fate of Lisa, Kim, and Tracy Ann.
0: The jury took more than two days to find two of the women guilty of the slaying. Mm -hmm. Today, they They found Lisa Brzezinski guilty of murder and Kim Jarvis guilty of manslaughter.
1: Lisa was sentenced to life in prison. Kim was sentenced to 18 years, and Tracy Ann was acquitted of any involvement in the crime. In sentencing Kim, the judge stated, You knew what was likely to happen. You took no pity at all on Mr. Baldick as another human being. Part 7. The Nail in the Coffin In 1996, Kim was granted parole after serving just five years of her sentence which was later reduced from 18 to 12 years. That same year, while still in jail, Tracy gave an interview to the Courier Mail newspaper where she reflected on the events of that fateful spring night, saying, I had snapped. I knew I couldn't kill a woman or someone I knew, but I don't know what I was looking for. I can still smell the river. It was really salty smelling. The smell of blood. The smell of metal that has been left to rust in the rain. And it was cold that night. Very cold. You think nothing. Nothing goes through your mind. There is no emotion. Just blind fury. Once I had started stabbing, I couldn't stop. I couldn't see Mr. Baldick. I kept seeing my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, my father, and all the people in my life who had hurt me. Murder is a terrifying experience. It's extremely scary to have that much power. It's playing God with life and death. Nobody should have that sort of power. But we all do. Tracy continued to deny that she drank Edward's blood or that she had any involvement in satanic rituals. It was also reported that while in prison, Tracy attempted to kill Lisa and commit suicide. In 2009, 43-year-old Lisa was also released on parole having served 17 years following approval by the Queensland Parole Board for her application for resettlement leave. By this stage, she was classified as a low-risk prisoner and would initially be allowed a maximum of 12 hours of leave every two months for six months. During Tracy's incarceration, where she was known by the nicknames Drac and Fang, she completed a Bachelor of Arts degree, majoring in Philosophy and Anthropology, she also obtained licenses to drive a bobcat and forklift. It was said that during Tracy's time in jail, she expressed remorse for her actions on that warm night back in October 1989, and that she'd even attempted to write the Baldick family to express her regret for taking the life of their beloved husband and father. In 2002, Tracy became eligible for parole and made four applications before she was successful. The family of Edward Baldick strongly opposed Tracy's proposed release and campaigned strongly for her to remain in jail. But Tracy didn't stay out of trouble while she was behind bars. In 2007, she applied to the Queensland Supreme Court, disputing her classification as a high-security prisoner after she was transferred due to her allegedly assaulting a fellow inmate, as well as a prison guard, in 2006. During her time in jail, it was also reported that in separate incidents, Tracy attempted to kill Lisa as well as herself. Eventually Tracy was diagnosed with hepatitis C as a result of injecting heroin. Tracy wrote to Edward's family saying, I have 19 years of a life sentence, and not a day has gone by that I don't think about the terrible thing I have done and the pain I have caused you. I know that no amount of wishing or dreaming can bring back Mr. Baldick, but by God, I do. I would give anything to change what happened. And to save you all the heartache, pain, confusion, and anger that I have caused. Edward's niece Tanya told the Courier Mail newspaper that despite Tracy's claim to the contrary, Edward's family had not expressed their forgiveness over her actions, saying, For my uncle and for my family, it's a life sentence. We live with it every day, and life sentence to me is a life sentence. It's not 16 years or even 21 years, it's forever. Tanya went on to say that none of the Baldick family had been notified of Tracy's release and that the family intended to write a letter to the parole board asking for Tracy to be returned to prison for making false claims on her parole application. Reservations about the prospect of Tracy's release back into the community weren't limited to Edward's family. Tracy's half-sister also expressed concerns, saying she was fearful of Tracy and believed her to still be a danger to the community. Despite these concerns, Tracy was granted parole and having served 23 years of her life sentence, was released on January 11, 2012. Aged 46, Tracy's disabilities and deteriorating health were cited as reducing her risk of reoffending, also mitigating the need for electronic monitoring following the release. When Tracy finally emerged from jail, she weighed 275 pounds, and was using a pair of crutches due to knee, back, and hip issues. Following her release, Tracy moved to the Gold Coast area in southeast Queensland. 31 conditions were attached to Tracy's parole. Under Queensland state law, former inmates released on parole are not permitted to speak with the media, sell their story, or profit from their crime. Tracy was also prohibited from making contact with Lisa, Kim, Tracy Ann, or the Baldick family, consuming alcohol and other drugs, or entering a bar. Tracy's strict parole conditions were also said to include a ban on the use of social media. But only a month after her release, the page of a Facebook user by the name of Oberon Fairchild, who was later identified to be Tracy, was seen to have images posted of vampires, skeletons, and human remains, including a meme of a skull and crossbones with the words, Now panic, because I'm back. Tracy initially struggled to find work following her release, with one prospective employer reported to have said, God forbid you take someone on and they go vampire on you. Following Edward's murder, his widow Elaine hung a plaque in the marital home to honor the memory of her late husband. In 1991, an emotional Elaine spoke to 60 Minutes. Keep asking
0: him why you left me. Just wishing he was there.
1: A former detective who investigated Edward's murder echoed Elaine's thoughts, saying of Tracy, She showed absolutely no pity for the victim. Didn't treat him as a human being. It was just a means for her to achieve her end. Listener, what do you think? What could have driven someone to such steps of depravity in attacking a defenseless and harmless stranger? Do you think the influences of reported Satanism, vampirism, or potential cult involvement played a role? And if so, to what extent? How much weight should be placed on a controversial psychiatric diagnosis as a mitigating factor in such a heinous act of violence? For today, that just about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.